0: Welcome to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast, a show helping you find better ways to live, run, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. The website for the show is paleorunner.org. Follow me on facebookcom runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. The sponsor for the show is Three Fuel. Three Fuel is a sports strength that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates. It's made from coconut, grass fed whey protein, and a slow releasing starch. To get 10% off your order, go to 3fuel.com and use the promo code 3 folson I'm here today with endurance coaching legend, Dr. Phil Maffetone. Dr. Phil has coached some of the greatest endurance athletes in the world, including Mark Allen. His latest book is 159. The Sub 2-Hour Marathon is Within Reach. Here's how it will go down and what, what it can teach all runners about training and racing. Dr. Phil Maffetone, thanks for being back on the show.
1: Aaron, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, Dr. Phil, it's great to talk with you again. And, and one of the questions that I always ask our guests starting out is what have you had to eat today?
1: What have I had to eat today? Oh, that's a good question. Well, it's still um it's it's morning here in Arizona. And uh I haven't worked out because I've had some interviews and I've had some uh computer work to do. Um but Typically, what I uh, am am doing now in the morning is having my coffee, I I call it um, Beyond Bullet Coffee, Mm. uh, which is some coffee along with an egg yolk and some coconut oil and some raw heavy cream that we get from our cow, Uh, and I I, um, blend that up and... um, uh, that's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm later in the morning than I think. So that was basically my breakfast, and then um, uh, about two hours later, I will have um, some eggs and vegetables, uh, and uh, some fresh tomatoes and zucchini and various things from the garden, and then the chickens have laid some eggs this morning, so I had uh, three eggs in with that, and that, that was my breakfast.
0: Oh, wow. That sounds pretty cool. So you've got a little, it sounds like a little farm down there with a, a cow and you've got some chickens and things like that. Well,
1: we, we have a mini farm and we grow a lot of our own food and, um, we're not completely off the grid as people understand it, but we're off the grid in 21st century style. So obviously we have internet and, um, and, but you know, we have a passive solar house and, collect rainwater, and uh, living off the land is quite wonderful.
0: Okay. And you also mentioned that you typically do a workout. Uh, What kind of workouts are you doing lately?
1: Um, You know, it depends on where I am, what I'm doing. Uh, I'll I'll swim, bike, run, hike, uh, and sometimes do weights. But um, part of it depends on how active I am, Uh, moving big stones and cutting wood, uh, on the farm, um, the more I do on the farm, the less I'll do, uh, with those tr- traditional workouts. But, I, you know, I do various things. I think cross training is very important. Um, so I'm not, I'm not just running or just biking throughout the year. It really gets mixed up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Right now I'm, I'm hiking and running and, um, um, and that, that balances out the, Increased writing that I do in front of the computer. And I have a, I have a standing, uh, a place where I stand and work on the computer most of the time. So I'm not sitting a whole lot.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I really like standing desks. So you yeah, mentioned you're still doing some running. Do you also race?
1: I have not competed in, uh, boy, it's been, it's been many, many years. Uh, there was a point and I think it was, it was probably, um, around 1990 there was a point where uh I would go to races with an athlete I was working with and then help help get them ready for the race and 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 then jump into the race myself and it just got to be so crazy um because I was I was you know I was pretty busy uh especially at the big important races and especially when they were athletes the you know, professional athletes. And, and I just realized, uh, in the middle of one race that, um, this, this is not as much fun as it used to be. Mm. And of course I don't do things that are not fun. So that was, you know, that was years ago, my last race. And I, I don't really miss it. Although I'll tell you every once in a while, um, I, I think about master's track and field which is where I started as a as a high school and college athlete in, in my competitive years. And um, and so far I haven't, you know, I, I have gone through the, the motions of training as if I was getting ready to run 200 meters or uh, something like that. And I've never actually taken that step, partly because there's no tracks around here. Um, I'd have to travel. And my idea of working out is that you know you should be able to just leave your leave your back door and go out to walk run bike hike whatever um and and that's what i do all the time so getting in the car is kind of far we don't use our car but twice a month anyway
0: okay okay interesting so do you do you prefer the sprints compared to longer distance races
1: um uh, Good question. I haven't I haven't done the sprints in so long that it, it's hard to relate. But I'm I'm attracted to that more than the longer distance races. Um, when I did run uh, road races and and triathlons and so forth, I, I was not as good as when I was um, a sprinter. So I I what I believe is that you're always as good as you were when you were younger relative to your peers. So I could I could outrun most of my peers when I was in in high school and college, and hypothetically I should be able to do the same now within my age group. And so that's kind of the challenge that I think about now and then. So far I haven't done it, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's talk. Let's get into your book a little bit. You you wrote the book 159. The sub two hour marathon is within reach. What got you interested in thinking about the 159 marathon?
1: Well, I wrote a, an article in, I think it was 1998, called the 159 Marathon. And I can't remember what the marathon record was back then, 207 maybe, I don't know. Uh, somebody will write in and, and give me that number. But it was, you know, it was a, a lot slower than it is now, that's for sure. But I had this concept that um, runners who were, who are competing at that level uh if they made certain changes in their lifestyle, including their training uh they could they can cut their times down significantly and and conceivably a one fifty nine fifty nine marathon would not be too far away if they did that. Well, the article kind of got some attention um. But I I don't think people took it serious. It was more of a, of an entertaining article. And, um, when I did speak to, uh, coaches and physiologists back then about the sub two hour marathon, it, you know, most of them talked from a speculative standpoint. None of them would ever want to be serious about it because they said it was, it was so far away that, you know, how could we be serious about discussing these things. And, you know, about, uh, I would say, maybe five years ago, I was thinking about that article, and I rewrote it, and I realized that there's a whole lot more to write about. So I ended up writing, I think it was a, a seven-part series called The 159 Marathon. And and I, I got a lot of interest from that. People were emailing me um, all kinds of interesting uh, things, ideas and, and some data. And, um, and of course, the, the medical literature already had some information on the 159 marathon, uh, from a speculative standpoint. So there was a lot of good stuff out there. And I realized, well, gee, this, this actually could be a book because I've written seven parts and there's a lot more to write. And that's, that's when I got the idea. For
0: a book. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think part of this, this uh, skeptical part of it, uh, at least for me, is thinking about elite athletes and um, how I, I think about myself—not not as an elite, but someone who wants to constantly get faster. And I, when I think about an elite, they are getting paid money for this. So, I, so I'm thinking, wouldn't they already be doing everything possible to improve their speed? And here you come along suggesting that. A few diet and lifestyle changes could make them faster. Tell me what you think that they're not doing that they could be doing better.
1: Boy, that's that's um you know that's that's an hours and hours of <laughs> of discussion. A lot of things. I've worked with a lot of professional athletes, and yeah, you would say, well, this athlete is getting paid, this is what they do for a living, they're making a lot of money, or this athlete is on, on the Olympic team and the you know the the athlete has the Olympic people uh, behind him or her. Uh, let me give you an example, um, and I won't mention her name. But there was a a, a woman marathoner who uh, had the American record, and it's possible she still does. Um, went to uh, made the Olympic uh, marathon team. Went to Beijing, and are we talking about two thousand eight? I think anyway, uh, just, you know, one of the recent, um, Olympics, uh, uh, started the marathon and in, in, in the course of running the race, uh, her foot broke. One of the bones in her foot broke. Mm. Now, this, this information is in, uh, in the the public, uh, literature. I, I, you know, I, I got this, I don't know this, this woman, but I got the information from a public article, so I'm not divulging anything, but, um, she was taken, uh, to the hospital and, um, evaluated. They found a break, uh, in, in one of the bones and among other things, vitamin D was measured and vitamin D levels were shown to be extremely low, deficient. So my question is, How in the world can the Olympic staff allow a runner of that caliber to develop a vitamin D deficiency, which throws off your, not just your calcium metabolism, but weakens your bones, weakens your muscles, adversely affects the brain, adversely affects hormone balance. I mean, we're talking about a lot of significant impairment from a performance standpoint. How in the world could they let that happen? Not only that, this is an athlete who lives in California, Mm. Mm. and we should get most of our vitamin D from the sun. So when you ask, you know, aren't professional athletes getting the best care in the world? No, they're not. They're really not. If you look at some of the Kenyans, if you look at, I mean, there's so many examples of people who are um, getting injured, uh, and, and, and not necessarily just a physical injury. There are, there are plenty of athletes who have a history of um, injuries on a mental level. Um, this marathoner I just talked about is an example of uh, someone who gets injured on a biochemical level. Um, and it's, it, you know, injury rates are, it, it, they're epidemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conservative numbers, um, well, if you look at overtraining, because uh, there, there's good statistics on that. Um, my overtraining statistics from when I was when I had my clinic, when I was seeing a lot of athletes, both amateur and and uh, professional, was about sixty percent. And I've seen sixty percent uh, of the athletes out there being overtrained in the literature as well. So that that's a good number, um, or I should say, it's an accurate number. It's a terrible number because overtraining means that you're doing things wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, who's to blame for that? Uh, th- there's a lot of answers. I'm not putting the blame on anybody, but athletes uh, should be responsible for their own their own fitness. Sure, they may have a coach, they may have a, a doctor, they may have a whole medical staff in, in the case of uh, of the Olympics. Um, but but it it would seem oh. like. No one's in charge when you've got injury rates, physical, chemical, and mental injury rates that high. It's just, it's just a, a, a terrible thing. So when you look at the best marathoners and you say, well, what if we removed many of those problems, many of those imbalances, many of those physical, chemical, and, and mental injuries, if you want to call them that, um, and if we didn 't remove all of them, but we only removed most of them, what do we end up with? We end up with runners who can finish a marathon way under one hundred fifty nine mm.
0: okay so you you you're saying that i think that that was a good point that you uh for people who are wondering uh, that was uh Dina Castor who had a, a fracture in her foot. And, uh, she, she admits to, um, having low vitamin D. I've heard her on an interview and you wonder how could that happen with such an elite athlete? And so I, I think that's a good point is what you said. Um, what are some of these tweaks that, that you mentioned in the book? Um, um, a few of them are like diet. Um, even things is some people might think of extreme as barefoot running. Um, what are, what, let's take diet for example. What are some things that elite athletes could do that they're not currently doing?
1: Well, for one thing, they could eat a healthy diet. I mean, it it doesn't get any more basic than that and and fundamental and important. Uh, when I was, uh, when I was working with athletes, I would always do an initial dietary analysis. And once the computerized version of those came around, I think, you know, sometime during the eighties, it was a whole lot easier to To do a diet analysis. Before that, we had to do it manually. Um, but when you do a diet analysis, you come up with uh, the percentages of fats, carbohydrates, and proteins, the uh, amount of uh, the levels of vitamins, the levels of uh, minerals in the diet, and so forth. And you can compare them against the RDA, which is really all we have to compare with. Um, and when you see... Um, a typical professional athlete not even reaching RDA levels in a half a dozen vitamins and minerals. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's shocking. It's, it's just amazing, uh, that, that these, these situations exist. And so, uh, just eating a healthy diet is, is, is going to be, uh, a very, very dietary, very important dietary uh, consideration. But the real important one, I think, has to do with carbohydrates because running a marathon is a sub-max effort race. It's not like a 5K. And, and people continually uh, compare you know, marathon paces to 5K paces, even 10K paces. And they're too very very different races. When you're running a 5 when you're racing a 5K, you're you're pretty close to your max output. When you're in a marathon, you're running a marathon, you're racing a marathon, the winners who are are, you know, breaking these records and winning the big marathons are running somewhere on the average of 83% of their max. So it if that sounds familiar, yes, it's actually a lot closer to their training paces than it is their 5k or even 10k paces in terms of the you know the max uh versus submax levels so in order to compete on a on a level um in a marathon the aerobic system needs to be the The system that works the best as opposed to the anaerobic system, which is a lot more involved when we run a five a k uh, for a marathon ninety eight percent of our energy comes from the aerobic system, mm-hmm. so it would make sense to not only train the aerobic system but but to eat so that our aerobic system is fueled and that fuel comes from fat and the best way to maintain a high amount of Turnover high amount of production of ATP from fat is to reduce the amount of uh, carbohydrates we eat, including eliminating completely eliminating all refined carbohydrates. That would be white flour and sugar, which makes up uh, the diets of most athletes in a in a significant way. Now I'm not talking about you know consuming a a, a glucose drink during the race. That that that's not what I'm talking about. I'm I'm referring to the the, the daily, you know, the, the, the meals that athletes are eating, uh, it should not contain bread and bagels and cereals and pasta and, um, you know, high sugar energy bars and all this stuff because it suppresses the ability of the body to convert fat to energy, which is the very energy they need to run a great race.
0: Okay. So it sounds like you're on board with the high fat, uh, diet lifestyle. I've talked, we've had Tim Noakes on the show a few times and he's also switched his, his opinion on this. Um, yeah. is there a certain amount of carbohydrates that are acceptable? Uh, Noakes recommended that, you know, you really wouldn't need more than 200 grams a day. What, what's your opinion?
1: Well, um, and I've, i you know, Tim and I have kind of been following each other's career, I think, for a long time. We finally started communicating a few years ago, um, and I was so glad to see him uh, make that switch—almost an overnight change—to to avoiding carbohydrates. Um, it, in my eyes, it was gee, the, the the one thing he needs to do is understand how bad carbohydrates are, and all of a sudden, there it was. So it was great to see that. Um, I think it depends on the on the individual. I think, um, uh, first of all, I think the high glycemic carbohydrates need to be completely eliminated, and those are the, the white flour and sugar products that um, that produce the largest amount of insulin, and it's insulin that impairs the, the fat-burning mechanism. Um, so beyond that, what about uh, natural carbohydrates like fruits and lentils and honey, uh, sure. People can consume those carbohydrates in, um, some amount that matches their particular metabolism. And, and this is where individuality comes in. Everybody's different. 200, uh, 200 grams of carbohydrate. Is that what you said?
0: Yeah, that's what he, uh, he said that, um, most people, even if you're training for the Ironman, you probably wouldn't need more than 200 grams because your body can uh, burn fat the rest of the time and, and oh, yeah. just use the 200 for, you know, intense bursts, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, you need you need some glucose, but, you know, we can get glucose. The body can get glucose from, uh, from fat, actually, because when we break down fat, we get some glycerol. But um, amino acids, uh, protein, um, contain uh, glucogenic amino acids that also convert to glucose, so we can get glucose from there um we we really don't have to worry about consuming carbohydrates um, because our body can there, there's no minimum requirement of of car, of carbohydrate because our body can get it uh through interactions in its biochemistry from various sources so 200 uh grams of carbohydrate is a, a good number uh i would say that some athletes n- would need to go down to 100 Mm. Um what I do for myself i 'm not trying to break the two hour marathon um but it doesn 't matter because you know what 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 I try to recommend is that people learn about their bodies and 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 develop their instincts and intuitions so that they know whether they 're better off at two hundred grams or one hundred grams. Or 50 grams. Um, and what I have done since I was about, um, 18 or 19 years old when, when this whole world of nutrition opened up to me is I started to, to try to read my body better. And I, you know, I've kind of been reducing my carbohydrate, my natural carbohydrate level, um, for many years. And about a year ago, I, you know, I, I dipped down to the point where I was going into ketosis slightly, which which was about fifty grams of carbohydrate or less a day. And I do that, and I know the amount because people ask me, uh, mm. just like just like you did. Um, I did that because there were little things that my brain was saying, "Hey, we're we're getting hungry a little bit more than we used to." And when when hunger is an issue, the first thing you think of is. You know, are you consuming enough calories? And, and I don't have any problem doing that. Um, but the, the next thing you think of is insulin. Are you produced too, producing too much insulin? And if you are, you get hungry more, more often than you should. And so then I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I'm consuming too much fruit, um, or too much honey. I wasn't eating much anyway, but I cut, I cut that down. Um, And I realized that, boy, that made a big difference. You know, as, as healthy as I feel from day to day, when I, when I feel little things that may not just be quite right and I make changes, I look for some improvement. And if I get the improvement, I know I'm on the right track. If I don't, I keep looking around, but you know, I cut back my carbohydrates and I probably was down to 50 grams by estimate. And then I noticed, um, I did a dipstick test for ketones and I noticed some ketones, uh, Elevating in my urine. So I was, I was in a mild state of ketosis. Some athletes may have to go down to that, to that level. Uh, and others, um, a hundred grams, which is, will, will not get you making too many ketones. And likewise, 200 grams may be appropriate for the person. But the, the important thing is it's very, um, it's very individual.
0: So, it sounds like you've just been listening to your body. um, For people, runners listening to this podcast, is that something that they can just do, or do they need to start measuring their food?
1: Every animal on earth knows how to eat except for humans. (laughs) And the problem is that we're bombarded directly and indirectly from... We're bombarded with misinformation from companies that make junk food. And... You know the whole the whole uh movement uh of of carbohydrates and you know having a a a, a carbo loading meal before a marathon and having uh you know I remember my first uh talk at the boston marathon uh uh dinner night before the race dinner it was probably i don't know if it was seventy nine or seventy i don't know Everything they had there was white. They had white pasta. Um, they did have some, some lettuce that was mostly white, but it had tinges of green. And, but there was some white fat free dressing and there was white bread and then there was white cake, uh, for dessert. And, you know, that whole trend did not come about because of scientific validation or, or studies that were suddenly done showing that, you know, athletes need to eat more carbohydrates. Uh, when, when Jim McKay was announcing the 1976 marathon, I could be mistaken, but, you know, back then, mm-hmm. uh, the Olympic marathon, uh, he had a little, there was a little side story about, you know, what do athletes, what do marathoners eat for breakfast on race morning? And suddenly on the screen appears this, High stack of pancakes. It 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 must have been ten inches high. It was. I, I mean, I I had to laugh. <laughs> but he said pancakes. Of course, you know, because they need energy. Well, that whole mis misconception that we need more carbohydrates to get energy came from companies that make carbohydrates. And so, um, yeah, we can be intuitive. We can be. You know, we could use our instincts. That's why we have such a great brain. Um, but. Our brain, you know, companies don't spend millions of dollars casually. They do it because they have figured out how to change the brains of their target audience. And they do a very good job of it. And um, that is the problem. So what athletes need to do is listen to their bodies. And quite often, I, you know, people ask me about, um, you know, listening to music when they run. And I say, no, no, you, you don't want to listen to music when you work out. You want to listen to your body. People have have gotten to the point where they 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 no longer know what their body's doing. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're out for a run and they're chatting the whole time with their friends. Uh, they're uh, out for a run on their own and they've got their little um, you know their their um, music, their iPod, um, uh, listening to music, which actually influences their run quite often in a negative way, but. Um, instead of all that, we, we need to, we need to focus within, we need to feel our body because what the brain does is when there's some little imbalance in the body, if our energy is not quite as good that day, or if it's better than usual, if our uh, muscles have a slight imbalance and our gait is thrown off a little bit, if something isn't quite right, which happens every day, the brain, um, is given that information continuously by the body every moment there's you know billions and billions of signals sent to the brain regarding the status of the body and the brain makes adjustments to your run it makes the adjustments um, in many different ways to make a long story short but if you're focusing elsewhere uh, some of that's still going to happen but a lot of it is not you're not going to you're not going to learn to be intuitive Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I really like that you point that out. You know, part of the, the premise of this show, Paleo Runner, is that uh, humans are an animal that, that has evolved over millions of years. We have this wonderful machinery in our foot and our, our brain is an amazing organism. And a lot of times if we just listen to those internal cues, uh, it'll lead us in the right direction. Exactly. Mm-hmm. How about uh barefoot running? Um there's a lot of I recently had Brian McKenzie on the show and he talks a lot about uh the skill of running and, and something called the post technique. Um do you think that running is a skill that needs to be taught, or can we just use uh barefoot running to kind of inform our body?
1: Wow, that's a that's a that's a great question. It's a really silly question. Um you know it's like saying do we know how to chew our food and swallow it do we do we know how to have sex do we know how to um stand up and walk um i suppose in today's modern society we've been uh fed so much bad information that many people are second guessing themselves of course we know how to run we've been doing it for millions of years and people often ask me and especially when i do a a lecture um you know, can you sh- show us the right way to run? Well, I could show you the right way for me to run, but I can't show you the right way to, to run. I can show you how to figure it out. And I'll often have somebody come up and run uh, across the room to show the audience the the gait of, of this runner, and then I'll have them take off their shoes and do the same run, and the audience is usually amazed because the difference is is significant. Um, if you want to know the best way for you to run, just take off your shoes and, and run. Mm-hmm. And and you don't have to do it for, for 10, 20, 30 yards. And that gate, um, will, your brain will automatically create your best gate because your brain knows what your best gate is. And when you look at a lot of runners out there, there's no way their brain wants them to run that way. But they're running that way. And a lot of it's because they're slumping over because they learned bad habits. A lot of it is because they're in shoes that are, uh, not right for their feet. A lot of it is because they're in shoes that are just too thick, which forces them, them to change the gait. Um, and the brain tries to adapt as best as it can, but it's a, a difficult task because they're, they're in, in a shoe that's so unnatural and abnormal that you know, the brain can't create normality and has to adapt the best it can. Mm-hmm. So we do know how to run. And, again, um, the market is flooded with, with uh, techniques. You know, you should raise your knees. You should, um, you know, uh, flex your knee. You know, your hip should do this. Your arm should do that. Um, the, the mistake that many people make is to look at elite runners and look at their gates and try to emulate them, and the biggest problem with that is it leads to an injury mm.
0: so, so
1: let your leave your body alone and let your brain do the work
0: mm, great advice I, I like that so what what shoes do you wear when you work out and go for runs, or do you wear any shoes
1: well i i've been uh running barefoot um, but I only have a small area a small um it's sort of like a, a a small track that i that I can go around because I live in Arizona, and anywhere you go, there are thorns everywhere um, when in the summer when I'm in the Catskill Mountains in New York, it's a lot easier um, but i I will put on shoes and i I have a pair of um, uh, pumas that are I want to say they're twelve years old now. Um, they're a leather puma that are. Perfectly flat. They have nothing in them, um, but this flat. um, uh, It's it's less than a quarter inch um, bottom. I use uh, ultras sometimes, uh, which are very similar, um, and um, they're they're very comfortable and they fit very well. And that's why I wear them. I I I have a lot of shoes um, that I uh, uh, don't use for running because they don't feel as good. So. Uh, you know, people need to find the shoe that fit best, best matches their, their feet. And that's not an easy task. You can't do that by, um, getting mail order shoes. You've got to go to more than one store typically to, to find the best shoe. And you have to really be a real pain to the shoe salesperson because you've got, you've got to try on, when you find a shoe that f- seems to fit perfect, you should try on a half size bigger. And, and then every time you try a shoe on, you want to try both of them on with the, 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 the style you're going to run in, whether it's without socks or with a thin sock. Uh, and then go outside and run. Go outside and jog for, you know, just a minute or so. Uh, and you'll get a sense. But when you find the right one, try on a bigger one and that might feel just as good or even better to your surprise. And you keep doing that until you find the shoe that's too big and then you go back a half size and that's, Good chance, uh, one of the best fits for you. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, the interesting thing is, is we finally have some shoe companies coming out and they're actually starting to make shoes that actually resemble a human foot. It used to be that uh, I would go to a running store and all the shoes, they get very narrow towards the end of the toes where mm-hmm. it's actually where your foot is widest. Yeah. Um, how about with your pumas? Are those narrow or are those old enough that they still had a natural last?
1: Uh, they have a a last that fits my foot. I have a narrow foot, Mm. so, um, it fits quite well. The ultras are the early versions where they had the really wide toe box and they're actually too wide because I have a, 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 narrow foot, but I know that a lot of people will, will, uh, will like those because of the, the, the wideness and certain shoes like new balance, I guess they still make widths. Um, and that would be a nice thing to do. And some companies don't, and so you're left with, you know, if if a Nike doesn't fit you, maybe an Adidas will. If an Adidas doesn't fit you, maybe a a, um, uh, a New Balance. You know, you just I don't I don't recommend any particular shoes um, other than uh, to say just just be be very very careful. Mm-hmm. But you know, despite the the shoe issue, there's two other important things. One is we can still improve foot function by being barefoot. We don't have to go out for a run, uh and you know, run ten miles barefoot. Some people do. Um, but just by spending more time barefoot, uh, don't ever bring your shoes in the house. First of all, there's toxins that you've stepped on in the course of the day. Why do you want to bring that into your house? Um, you know, when you're home you should be barefoot. If you could be barefoot at work, you know, even if you have a, a Pair of socks on. Boy, that would, you know, spending more of your time barefoot is going to help develop your, your muscles a lot better. Um, and then it's too late for many people, but we, we have a problem when we raise children who are always in shoes because the development, the neuromuscular development, the, the relationships between the brain and the feet, Develop in the first five years of life, especially, but in the first, you know, 18 to 20 years of life. And if we have shoes on during that period, that development is impaired, very well known. And so keep your kids out of shoes. Um, And one of the reasons the Kenyans, the East Africans in general, do so well in the marathon is because they've grown up barefoot. Mm. And in fact, many of them are barefoot all the way to the point where they suddenly start racing well and they win a pair of shoes. And that's the first time they put on a pair of shoes. So can, can, um, uh, can Ryan Hall or some of the top Americans who have the potential um, to run much, much better uh, start running barefoot? Probably not because they may not have developed that foot mechanism uh when they were children in the barefoot state. Maybe they maybe they did. Uh, but they can improve foot function by spending more time barefoot and maybe running a little bit barefoot and then making sure the shoe that is worn for for most training and then for the race is uh is a shoe that fits well. Then your foot will not be impaired as much by the by the shoe. But the Kenyans today, uh why are they not running barefoot? There's one simple answer. They're sponsored by shoe companies. Hmm.
0: But wouldn't they get – I mean, we're talking about prize money in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. If they could take home 200 uh, grand, wouldn't they just throw off their shoes and and then take the prize money back to Kenya?
1: Uh, You would think so. But um, having having worked with athletes in virtually all sports throughout my career – um, and seeing the, the the money, you know, the sponsorship issue firsthand, even with myself, um, uh, if somebody comes up to you and gives you a check for $50,000 and says, wear our shoes, you have to wear them every time you train, every time you're, you know, casually uh, hanging around or going shopping, and of course when you race, um, you're... You're going to take the money and run, so to speak. It's sort of, you know, that, that strange saying, um, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. People, people want that instant gratification and they take it. Um, I think all it will take is one up and coming Kenyan who realizes that he or she can run much better like they've been running, uh, all their developmental life, uh, and they and they run a marathon and they are doing it barefoot and they're you know they're running quite well or they're breaking a record. It'll it'll change the environment overnight.
0: Yeah, that that will be fascinating to see if someone actually tries that out and does that. Now we've had one person. Uh, I think it was the 1960 Olympics where a a baby. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but a baby Bikila ran yeah. barefoot. But then yeah, in 64, and- he wore shoes and yes. ran faster, right?
1: Yes, because he got a sponsorship. Well, he got a sponsorship. Um, but, you know, that environment was was very different. For someone to run a marathon and win it barefoot back then was like me writing an article in 1998 called the 159 Marathon. People kind of look at it and, you know, they kind of, Chuckle, and they, you know, they they find it interesting, but they don't see the reality of it. Today, things are different. Um, we understand why barefoot running is better. There's really no question about it, despite the silly emotional debates, and they're they are simply silly emotional debates. Um, but I think when it's done today, and it will be done, it's just a matter of time. Uh, when it is done, um, the response in um, in the running community, in the athletic community in general, because we're not just talking about runners, uh, will be very different than it was in, in 1960.
0: Okay. Now, one thing I was thinking about with that is, let's say you could get a shoe like a Vibram 5 Fingers that is very light, has, a, has almost no cushioning, but just a little bit of protection – um, one thing I've noticed with my running is that it will kind of allows me to zone out a little more if I just have a small amount of protection. And maybe could it be possible that that might be helpful? Because, yeah, you might beat your body up more, but maybe it would help you run faster if you didn't have to think about where you're placing your foot.
1: Uh, yes, it's a good point, but I want to correct something. You're not going to beat your body up more if you're running properly. Mm. But if you're going out and you're thinking about uh Mutai or one of the Kenyans who you just saw on TV uh, win some big race. And you've got that incredible image of his gait in your brain. And, you know, when we do this, this is where mental imagery comes from in sports. When we do this, we have this image of this runner and your brain is now trying to Make contact with certain muscle fibers that create that kind of gait. And if you allow that to happen, we get injured. Um, but you should not be, you should not, uh, get injured from running if you're barefoot or if you're in some real, uh, thin shoe like, like the five fingers or, uh, like the Pumas that I wear or, or the Ultras or some, some shoe that doesn't try to do anything to your foot. So you can run relatively natural, like a, like a moccasin. Um, if you get injured wearing those things, it's because there's something wrong with your body, not because of the shoe. Um, but yeah, if you wear those things, see, you, you probably didn't grow up being barefoot all the time and, and learn to run and become a good runner. Being barefoot, right? Um, and I didn't either. Uh, I did run track races barefoot uh, when they allowed me. They often wouldn't allow it. Um, but there, there are many people around the world who have grown up barefoot, and, and so for uh, for those people, going back to those barefoot roots is, is is a way to take off a lot of time from a from a marathon.
0: Mm-hmm. What would you think about uh, allowing athletes to maybe, instead of getting a shoe contract, maybe uh, tattoo their body or have some kind of marking, you know, not maybe a permanent tattoo, but some kind of marking? I know there was a, a woman in, in the New York Marathon a few years ago who tried to have some kind of sponsorship on her skin, and they said, oh, you have to, you have to cover that up with a black marker because it's not allowed. Really? Yeah. It, what, maybe if we, maybe if that, I think it was against the international track rules to have some, um, some kind of marking on your skin. Maybe instead of shoe contracts, we could do uh, some kind well, of a tattoo. The,
1: yeah. The tattoo idea is, is a great one. I've been talking about that for years. Um, I've never heard of, of, um, markings on the skin being illegal. Uh,
0: uh, I'll have to look up the article and if I find it, I'll put it yeah. in the show notes.
1: Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a great idea and it's a way for a company to sponsor an athlete, um, to replace the money they would lose in a shoe sponsorship or for a shoe company to say, Hey, look, you could run barefoot, but use a tattoo, use our tattoo. And then, uh, you're probably going to wear shoes when you go shopping, and all, that, and you know, wear our shoes when you do that, and wear our clothing. So, you know, the shoe comp the shoe companies have no reason to do that now. But as soon as somebody runs a marathon barefoot and and breaks a record, they will be forced to make those kinds of concessions. They're they're not forced to do anything now. Um, they actually call the shots, and they are one of the reasons. For so many injuries and, and in my eyes, the reason we're talking about the possibility of a 159 marathon, I think we should be talking about the possibility of uh, a 149 marathon. The fact is people like Michael Joyner from the Mayo Clinic, who's written a lot about, uh, uh, the sub two hour marathon, uh, has made calculations and the, 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 uh, the calculations for marathon times Can be obtained from, uh, by, by, uh, comparing VO2 max, lactate, and running economy. And Michael says, you know, in the, in the best case scenarios, we're, we're down to 248, or I forgot what number it was, 247 or 248. And then I looked at those same calculations and came up with, um, a a time that was about a minute faster. So maybe I was 247 and he was 248, but you know, that, that's where we're going. And that's what we should be talking about. You know, can, can a runner want, run a 149, 59 marathon? That's, that's inconceivable. Well, we're a little behind the times, but you know, what's interesting is that the, the environment in this discussion is similar to what the environment, uh, was when, um, when the four minute mile was was broken it was humans can't run under 4 minutes it's physiologically impossible and a lot of people believed that right up to the time banister who was the only guy who seemed to believe in in the sub 4 minute mile uh right up to the time that he that he broke that that record mm-hmm.
0: yeah you know, we're coming up to the end of the show, and I had a, I had a couple questions I wanted to get to before I let you go. One is a personal question, but I know other people will want to hear the answer because uh, you're, you've worked as a chiropractor and physical therapist for years, and I have a bone bruise or ma- possibly a stress fracture on my metatarsal, and I heard it through water skiing. And I, I wrote about it on my blog, and I had a few comments on there, other people dealing with uh, bone injuries. Is there anything that runners can do? If they're dealing with a stress fracture or bone bruise to speed the healing?
1: Uh, yes. Um, and let me just go back. I never, I do have a chiropractic degree, but I never practiced as a chiropractor okay. and I'm not a physical therapist. If I was going to start all over again in, in some curriculum, I would probably go into physical therapy. Um, because the, the doctorate programs, um, uh, are, are just from what I could see quite, quite, um, fabulous but anyway um, the the you know with a bone um, whether it's a so-called bone brew you know some injury uh, where you you've hurt the bone um, you want to you want to find some yes they're treatable and I've treated so many of those things and one of the problems is when you injure that bone you've also injured some muscles and it may not be as evident or many times people get injured and they they think of uh, the bone hurting or the the fascia or a ligament or a tendon and you know it's the muscles that that really run the show so to speak um, and if we if we damaged a bone or a joint um, normally the brain would compensate for that and um, the way it compensates is by readjusting the muscles, so the muscles um, function in a way to take the stress off the joint or off that area of the bone. Um, and if you injure the muscles at the same time, and you don't realize the muscles are injured, then you don't compensate as well. And, and by not compensating, the injury lingers on, it becomes chronic. So quite often in those situations, um, I would say more often than not, the problem is some muscle imbalance, quite often hidden away there, and you um, you want to hope your body can fix that, and if it doesn't, fairly soon, it may not, and therefore you have to find a therapist who can evaluate the muscles, and if something is found, know how to correct them, or know how to, know who to send you to, uh, someone who can, who can apply some therapy that will correct those muscles, and then that will allow your body to heal up in a natural way. That's, that's my take on a lot of those kinds of injuries.
0: Okay. And my last question before you leave us is, uh, here, this is a question that I've been asking all my guests lately, and I call it the magic mile. And my question is, how fast do you think you could run one mile if you had three months to train, you didn't have to worry about your bills or going to work or anything, just three months to train to run a mile as fast as you could?
1: Um, interesting question. Um, I don't know that it's very relevant, but it's interesting. Um, you know, it, it brings up the issue of Uh, you can overtrain yourself into a great performance. Um, but you, you risk sacrificing the body. Uh, and a lot of people do that because we have all these athletes who have one or two great races and then you never hear from them again. Um, and that's, that's the, that's the scenario I'm talking about. Three months. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, well into my sixties. So I would say 530.
0: Okay, great. How about we put, you think you could, uh, run a 529? Maybe just, just under 530?
1: Um, if I, if I had, uh, uh, altitude to help me, if I was able to train high and, I'm sorry, live high and, and, and train low and then race at sea level, maybe.
0: Okay, great. Now, I, I wanted to go into that a little more because you, you, uh, you seemed a little bit off put by that question. What is it about the three months of training that you don't that you wouldn't recommend, or you didn't you don't like?
1: Uh, n- nothing. You know, I mean, I have a I have a nice low level aerobic base. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, I I could probably do a, a good amount of anaerobic stuff if I uh, recovered well. Um, but what what happens is a lot of people, um are are always coming in and out of overtraining. Mm. And if they, and it's, you know, it's sort of like, okay, we could really run you into the ground and there'll be a point along the way that your your muscles are going to be stronger because we've stressed your brain, we've revved up your sympathetic nervous system. It's like the mother who lifts up a car because her kid is underneath it. You know, that that unimaginable power uh, well, that's the kind of power that comes out in overtraining in a very brief moment. And so, if I was going to run a mile, I might toy with the idea. Okay, I'm I'm not going to overtrain, but if I maintain this kind of training, I would be overtrained. So I want to I want to time it so that I'm running this mile time trial at a point before I'm overtrained, but at a point where I've maximized my my training now. That one mile event is is fifty percent anaerobic and fifty percent aerobic. So um, you know you've got to do some some hard training for that. Okay, okay.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Phil Maffetone, it's been great having you on the show today. Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us and all about uh, your latest book. If people want to know more, they're going to have to pick up that book on Amazon. And I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Aaron. It's been fun
0: thanks for listening to another paleo runner podcast if you like podcasts you're also going to like audible.com audible has over a hundred thousand titles to choose from for your iphone kindle android or mp3 player you can even burn a cd of the audiobook if you like it's a great way to learn while you're driving in the car or cleaning up around the house one of the great things about audible is that if you decide that you don't like the book you've downloaded you can actually exchange it for another one they want you to be happy with your order If you'd like to get a free audiobook download, sign up at audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. You'll get a free audiobook download that you can keep regardless of whether you continue with the service or not. So go to audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. Thanks for listening.